I know a lot of listeners, moms and dads, have had to deal with CPS. And and I've had shows about the the what to do, the how to do with CPS. Uh, but when we when we were doing the shows in the past about child protective services and and what happens when they're get become involved in your family struggle and in your family situation. Um, one of the things that we weren't able to really dive into is who's there to support you and, and how do they support you if someone is there to support you and how do you find that support once CPS makes the visit, makes the call, or you know they're coming. So that's going to be today's show. I have Ariel Dew and Nicole Gilkey from Safi, S-A-F-Y. And while we're talking, if you're sitting in front of a, a laptop or a desktop, safy.org. You gotta, you gotta look them up while we're talking so you're starting to understand what's going on. But when CPS becomes involved with your family, you need to get onto their website, A-S-A-P. And I want them to tell you why. Parents, thank you for listening to Beyond Risk and Back. I'm your host, Aaron Huey. Please listen, like, subscribe, share, and leave a review on iTunes for Beyond Risk and Back so we can help more parents get the help they need to help their teens. And really, that review is how those little SEO spiders go jumping all over Google to make sure that this show gets boosted up. And I'm experiencing a huge uptake in listeners. And I know that's from you sharing support with your friends and family. And so parents, thank you so much. Welcome to the show, everyone. New listeners, old listeners, and Ariel and Nicole. They are our guests from Safi. Ariel, Nicole, thank you so much for being here today. Just off the air, there was such a huge, I'm like, oh my God, I've needed you guys for years. So thank you for being here with me today. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having us. So yeah. let's jump right into it. Uh, Ariel, can you please just introduce yourself, your expertise, your, your amazing superpowers and <laughs> what the heck you're doing, doing what you're doing? Sure thing. I, I do think I have superpowers, so so thank you. <laughs> um, my name is Ariel Dew. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor supervisor. Um, I've been a therapist for about six years, but I've been working with teens and the mental health and uh, marginalized communities for about 10, 12 years. Um, I started in Louisville, Kentucky. I worked with Wayside Christian Mission, which is a homeless shelter. And I worked with the Resilient Families Project. And I worked with homeless parents on how to find trauma-informed parenting skills. It was a grant that was with University of Louisville Psychology Department. After that, I went to grad school at the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. And I interned at Youth Outreach Corps. And it was it was great. Um, it was a phenomenal experience to work in the west side, south side of Chicago with at-risk teens, you call them, in that area that had some felony charges, um, substance use, of course, loads and loads of community violence, trauma, inter intergenerational trauma. Um, and actually, before that, I worked in North Chicago and Waukegan um, for wow. Youth Build, where it's a similar program where I worked with young adults ages 16 to 24 who had similar backgrounds. And so once I got my, my, my degree in clinical counseling, I came back to Louisville, I came home 
and found SAFI. And I found this phenomenal program, FPP, Family Preservations Program, where you actually go in the homes and work with the families, ranging from kids all the way to teens that are involved with Child Protective Services. And I never left. So that's my story. Phenomenal. <laughs> Nicole, talk about talk about yourself, Nicole. Hi, I'm Nicole Gilkey. I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been in the field a little over 20, about 22, 23 years. My work, uh, it is predominantly in child welfare, but I've also worked with adults uh, that have faced depression, anxiety, and I've also worked with adults that that have psychosis, so severe mental illness, and, and I, I've done outpatient services for adults that are less serious illness, but also for, for the hospital, um, I've done psyche vows. I did that for 10 years. What I currently manage is our, at SAFI, is our family preservation program. And what this program does is that we work with bi- biological families where we preserve and reunify children with either their bio moms or dads or relative placements. And we work with about 300 families a year. Wow. So the goal of SAFI, as I see it, as I look at your Facebook page, as I look at your website, it seems that the overarching goal, the umbrella goal is keep the kid with the family. Is that yes. accurate? That is absolutely accurate. That okay. is our main goal. So why, why is that the goal? What, what is it about that goal? You know, and I know we're going to state the obvious, but I also want to explore some of the more intricacies of that family connection. In, in all the years of working treatment and running a facility in doing coaching, I know, and being a partially adopted child, I know what happens when we set, separate uh, prime influence, bio prime influence. Is that, is that just it? Is that, is it just keeping bio prime influence intact or is there more to that? Attachment is so important. Children, when they're removed from their biological parent, no matter what you do, they, there is a need to get back to that parent. Mm-hmm. And um, we have found that over and over that you can separate them at a, a especially when you separate them at a, at a later age, um, at, especially adolescence. There may have been abuse, there may have been neglect, but that's still their parent yeah. and there's need to want to get back to them. And so, you know, and our program is very strength-based. So we work on trying to find where and how we can help those parents and those children find how can they be come back together so that they, they can flourish. And typically what we have found, and I, I don't, you know, I don't want to speak in absolutes, but children don't want to be in foster care. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ariel, there's, there's been a, a, a trend and I know that this is almost uh, a state policy, if you were, and you, and you guys have to work closely with the state. You work in conjunction with CPS. You you have to maintain uh, uh, Medicare uh, qualifications of your care and stuff like that. But Ariel, is it true? Because I know it's true in Colorado that to put your child in a long term placement program. 
because of addiction trauma, the, the roots of addiction, not the fruits of addiction, but the roots of addiction, a lot of times parents are asked to turn their children over mm-hmm. to the state. So mm-hmm. is that is that true? Is that true in multiple places? And is Safi standing in the way of parents having to give up their kids to get care? Yeah, I don't think that Safi's in the way. I think our program is actually an advocate for for parents' voice in those situations. You know, it can be very overwhelming when your child doesn't know how to deal with feelings, emotions, all these crises in the world, um, along with generational issues of trauma. So I think parents a lot of times don't have a voice or understanding for for themselves. So we can help advocate that and help put tools in the home that going into care is not going to heal what happens in the home. You know, the years and the the feelings and the 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 model and nurturing, all that healing is done in the home. And so I think parents generally, once they have that hope that is instilled in them. That, that turns around of wanting their children to be out of the home. We often find that they want their children home. They just want help. They need help on how to navigate that. Can you guys both speak to uh, this, this concept that CPS is involved? Like, like that, they, that, you know, just those words. And, and when you're working in treatment, when you're a parent, when you're a, a, a mental health worker, CPS comes with so much baggage. Mm-hmm. And... As, as mandatory reporters, we're in, we're in contact with them. You have to know how to navigate those phone calls and how they, they do their assessments and everything like that. But as a parent, it feels like an absolute invasion. So what's going on with CPS? Is there a, is there a inherent issue with CPS and how they approach? Is it because these parents are already defensive because they know they've done something wrong? What are, what is, what is creating the, the first aspect of the relationship and how does Safi show up to the relationship between parents and uh, CPS and ease that strenuous, tenuous beginning? I think that's a great question. Um, you know, it's a, it's a delicate balance between our role and being a therapist with the family and being a, a, a partner with CPS. You know, I, I think for many families, it's, it's embarrassing. It's a shame, you know, feel guilty that um, I have this person coming into my, this invasion of the person coming in telling me, I'm not parenting, parenting my child. Oh, and they're correct. checking your cabinets. They're making sure you've taken out the trash. Is the bathroom clean? Like it's exactly how how dare this person? It's difficult. And so, you know, how do you reconcile someone coming here? And our role is to come in and advocate and be able to, you know, help that family not only advocate, but also help show their strengths to the worker and then also say, okay, maybe there are some areas. How can we help you develop even more skills than you already have? Our, our role is to build on their strengths, not to negate those or make them look worse or um, shame them. And so yeah. that's a big piece of, of um, how we highlight them for the CPS. Yeah. I also want to add, like, we we also try to normalize those feelings because it's scary. 
You know, who who wants CPS in your life, especially when you're targeted? We have to highlight that there's a systematic issue and then CPS is the system. And so for some families, whether it be socioeconomic or race issues, you know, we let it be known that like, hey, we do see this as a targeted issue and we can validate that this is scary, you know, and to get through this, this scary situation, it's okay to be aware of that. We see that too. And I think that's always a great hook and connection we have is to let them know that we see them and we, we, we understand it to that level. Ariel, my assumption is that, that the targeting and the profiling uh, with CPS is also something that exists. Can you speak to the numbers that may prove or disprove an imbalance in how CPS approaches black families, white families, uh, Hispanic, you know, culturally diverse family? Are, is CPS made up of culturally diverse people or is their training still reflective of a system that's just out of whack. You know, um, I'm I'm a black therapist, so it's always a, an honor to go into black homes and see the ease on their faces. Um, okay. I do always also have the pleasure to advocate for CPS on that. When they ask for SAFI FPP, they're putting resources in that home. They're not going to just leave it up to the judge. They're not just going to leave it for judgment. They're saying, hey, family, we see there's a need here. So we're going to put services in place to prevent removal. You know, I'm not sure of the numbers and that data. Maybe, maybe Nicole does. But I think that the unjust society that we have naturally puts those things into place. We work in predominantly the West End, so it's a destitute area. You know, there, there's it's a lack of education. It's a lack of resources. That of itself makes it hard for people to survive. It's, it's hard for people to have those self-sufficiency skills on top of just racial issues and socioeconomic issues. So I think that it's kind of, it's delicate and hard, you know, but there is a whole system in place. But CPS, when they call for SAFI, I, I think it's always a win. Um, there's a, there's a, a negative image of CPS, but social workers are doing their job when they ask for resources for families. So, Nicole, a question to follow up on that is something that Ariel's been saying a couple times in, in what she was just talking about, is that CPS brings you guys in. And is that something, are you guys an organization that a parent can request from CPS? If, if CPS is involved, can a parent says, I want, I need Ariel on the phone right now. And CPS has to bounce or, and, and then the follow-up question, what's CPS's motivation to involve Safi? Why would they look at a situation and say, we need Safi here versus say, no, you don't get Safi. It would be highly motivated for C for um, CPS to involve us, mostly because um, we can help them. We help families with lots of different things. We wear uh, four different hats. We advocate for families. We provide therapy. We provide case management. We teach skills. We're in Kentucky, our program, and poverty is an issue in Kentucky. One out of every five person lives in poverty here. So lack of resources for basic living needs is, is huge. Transportation, food, shelter. We are very helpful in, in helping stabilize many families because if you don't have your, your basic needs, it really does impact your mental and physical health. It's hard to um, manage lots of other things, especially interpersonal and relationships, you know, extended relationships it going on if you don't have all those other things. 
um, when CPS makes a referral to us, it can really be beneficial for them because um, they can get out of the home uh, or they can close services much sooner. What I'm enjoying so much about this interview is how is is how we are talking about direct support when that thing that shows up the state the police the paramedics cps it's it's something in that moment that parents need to go okay what do i do now and have an answer to have a resource beyond risk and back my facebook page parenting teens that struggle all these things are designed to just be resource for parents here parents come here on the way to work if you're you you suddenly get the phone call and you have to turn away from work and go to the kids school to pick them up because they got busted with weed and now they want you to take them home there's a podcast for you to listen to. There's a, a Facebook page that you can go to and say, oh my God, I gotta, I can't go to work. I gotta go pick him up. I just need to vent or I need some support. I need some solutions. And that's what I believe is going on with Safi. And Safi's bringing it to the table when CPS is involved and that's huge. So to this end, to continue the, the, the paradigm of support, I created the Brab app. B-R-A-B-A-P-P. And if you go to brabapp.com, take a 10-question quiz. It's going to tell you whether your family's in the red, the yellow, or the green. Red's high risk, beyond risk. Yellow's at risk. Green is things are good, but you know they could be great. And whatever the answer is, wherever you get suggested to start the Parenting Masterclass, you get all three courses for less than a week's worth of coffee. And I designed my parenting masterclass to be affordable because parents need help. And this Brab masterclass is something that you can listen to on the way to pick up your kid at the principal's office or when it's night and you know they've snuck out and you know you're not gonna sleep anyway, so you might as well listen to a class. And some of the classes are two minutes and some of them are 20 minutes because y'all know I love to hear myself talk. So some of them are very long, but there are 56 classes for less than a week's worth of coffee. So go to brabapp.com, take the 10 question quiz and get the support you need. Go to safi.org, S-A-F-Y.org. Go to Facebook, they got a Facebook page. Go to, go to Parenting Teens That Struggle on Facebook, get support. Speaking of support, let's get back to Nicole and Ariel. You guys, I was doing the ACE quiz with a client yesterday. And one of the things that came up for me, especially as you're talking about being in Kentucky and one out of every five, the systemic racism that's bred in to the culture and, and what is taking place with trying to separate and resistance of the familiar resistance of removing the familiar and on and on. As I was going through this quiz with this white girl from Southern California, who's struggling with heroin and, I noticed there were no questions on the quiz, on ACE quiz, about racism. Is CPS aware? Do they know? I mean, I, what you said really struck me. When you walk into a black family's home as a black therapist, the look on their face has got to be worth what? Is, it, is, it, is that worth gold or is it just more reiteration that we're still dealing with this issue every single day? Mm. 
Yeah, there's definitely race related stressors. Um, and we don't we don't assess that enough. And I don't think it's a CPS issue. I think it's just a mental health national issue. You know, the DSM itself and the history of psychology always lacks diversity and uh, advancement of that. So I think that that that's just an issue of itself. Um, as a treatment director, I do try to train my staff to know when you go in that home, regardless of how you look, you have to empathize and see what's going on within that. You know, we can't have this color blindness. There's something behind that. So I don't think, you know, yes, there's an, it, it, it's very honorable to see that like, oh my gosh, wow, you're black. We're safe. That's sad to see. Um, but I think also there's an aspect of having this competency and knowing that cultural and racial issues are real, that families can be comfortable. And I think that just all around wide range, we need to to, to kind of like be more trained in that of race-related measures. I was thinking when you said the ACE score, I was like, yeah, race isn't on there. And, and that's a real thing. It's a real stressor that comes with, with so much that we don't even have time to discuss. So Nicole, as I'm as as you guys are talking, I'm I'm staring at the 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 video on the Safi website front page and I'm watching it scroll. And it's a very diverse uh, uh, little video clip. I'm now here's the big white family all sitting at the dinner table, and the and the black girl hugging her father at graduation, and the father and the son playing video games on the couch, and things like this. Does the curriculum, in your opinion, for these parents, follow the marketing? Is is your curriculum diverse? Does it? Do you guys dive into these issues? You know, Ariel talks about training the staff. Are you seeing and feeling this? Can any family, a middle class white family, an upper class black family, uh, a, a lower class, can anybody call Safi and say CPS is showing up? When you mean CPS is showing up, what do you mean? I mean when a family knows that they are now in the system regardless of their socioeconomic standing or their race, are you guys, does, does your curriculum support them? I like to think so. And part of our program is that it's important that we do. We have to do checks and balances within our own, our own program um, because it is important. How someone gets involved with child protective services, we have to look at all facets. And so you can, not make any money or you can make a hundred thousand. And, and so, um, so financially, um, racially, we have to just be aware and be mindful. And so we do a lot of training, but you know, and Ariel leads this in our program because she keeps us on target a lot of the time. And she brings in trainers for us to be culturally sensitive racially sensitive. It's not something that you just know or that you can have one training and just be competent. And and so it takes ongoing lessons to continue to learn. This has been an amazing, in my opinion, bread and salad conversation. So now let's get to some of the meat and potatoes of like, like some some direct support. Number one, finances. How, when, when, when Safi gets involved, who's paying? Are the parents paying? Is CPS paying? State pay? Country pay? Where's the money for your guys' work coming from? So parents do not pay for our program. The, the, what we do in particular, um, it is free to families. Medicaid pays 
or um, we are federally funded. So it is a Families First program. So we bill um, that to Families First or Medicaid. Okay, then the second thing, and Ariel, I think I, I think I want to direct this at you. You get the call from CPS that they want you guys to engage this family. How does that process look for the family when when all of a sudden they say CPS says we're going to send Safi? What can a family expect when you knock on the door? They expect a fast wraparound. Um, we are an intensive program. So we once we get that call, we try to get in within 72 hours wow. of assigning it to a therapist. Yeah, we try to get in um, and really stabilize the situation. Workers do notify the families and we make a call and let them know, hey, we are staffy and we are here to help. You're in a situation. Can I come by and talk more about it? And our, our staff are trained really, really well to be welcoming and have strong rapport with empathy that we can open a case. We have a really good success rate of opening cases and being able to stabilize. So it's fast. You guys were talking when we were off the air before you guys were talking that four hours a week to work with a family. And by the time you're done, and this one blew me away, by the time you guys are done, you've done a year's worth of outpatient hours. That is spectacular. But how how long do you generally see yourselves involved with a family? And is there a time frame that Families First, this government initiative, needs you to be in and out because we've got others? Or is it a, a, an open-ended relationship with the family? So Families First allows us to do 15 months. Wow. However, we have a high intense program and then we have less intense. And our okay. less intense go about three months with four hours um, four to five hours a week, but our real high intense is eight to 10 hours a week wow. of direct. And that's one, and it's only four weeks. We usually tell families, you're going to see me more than maybe some of your other family members, <laughs> but you know, um, four weeks goes fast and you're out and that's, that's, um, 40, 40 hours of, of intervention of therapy. And you get a lot done in 40 hours. And the others, it's it, um, it all comes out pretty much the same amount of hours in the wash, four hours a week for 12 to 16 weeks. And that's the other programs. So Ariel, when, when you come in and we're saying, hey, we're doing this, we're in with you guys, we're supporting you. I imagine that there's a... Uh, Maybe not a distrust. Maybe that's the wrong word, but I imagine there's a process that a parent goes through where they realize that you guys are not just another arm of CPS or the government or the invasion forces on their in their trauma struggles, but but that you're actually showing up to help. And then once that relationship starts to develop, you've got to go through the normal therapeutic relationship of you can really trust me with the shadow. You yeah. can trust me with this darkness that you've been living in. And you can also trust me with the darkness you grew up with because we know there's genetic expression taking place. This is not yeah. something that showed up yesterday. Great, great grandma, great, great mm -hmm. grandpa. It's been happening. Mm -hmm. And so now, even if we're doing the, the really intensive or the more long drawn out one, are there landmarks for the family that they must achieve and reach? And is there, once you guys are saying, okay, hey, we're dipping, you guys did great. What's, what does follow-up look like? What does aftercare with Safi look like? 
Yeah. So it, it's really cool because when we go in families, not all families, but there's, of course, there's a resistance. Sure. Like, I have to do this program. How long? You're going to be here. How long? You know, and it's always <laughs> cool because when they, we close, they're like, oh, you're going to go already. Why? Aww. But I think it becomes enjoyable for the families because we do collaborative treatment planning. You know, we really base their their goals and objectives on, yes, what CPS sees and concerns, but what they want as strengths, what they want CPS to see, how they want to come at it at the end. And part of our, our program with the grant, we do have a follow-up. So after we close, there's a, a follow-up of three months, six months, and 12 months to see how the family is going, what they need. And if there is something that they're not being heard, we do run that back to CPS because we will always try to make take care of our families. That's our initiative. Whether you're open or closed, we'll take care of them. I, w- I want to be able to address success rates um, because A, I, I come from an industry uh, where high success rates is a marketing ploy, all right? And authentic success rates, um, you got to be able to defend. And anytime, and I, I had a program with one of the highest adolescent success rates in the United States. But when people say, how did you achieve that? I said, we interviewed the parents three months, six months, a year after treatment. So we were getting our info from the parents because all of our parents were working with their insurance companies. The only like monetary one that we could possibly achieve is to go after the insurance companies and say, show us what this family is utilizing now compared to what they utilized before us. But before we began today's episode off the year, you were telling me Safi has over 90% success rate. Yes. That's spectacular. And anybody who says they have a hundred, hang up the phone on them and <laughs> turn around and walk <laughs> away because I don't care how good the programming is. Addiction, assault, abuse, and abandonment creates relapse and struggle. And un- unless you really know what relapse and sobriety actually is in real human effing terms, then, then you're not getting accurate numbers. So what I want to know from you is what's your actual number? What does that number actually mean? And how are you deriving those results? So what we do is we take the follow-up information that Ariel was discussing, this, the three month, the six month, in the 12 months, we follow that information. And that information, it comes from the parents that we, that we call. And we actually do have, we go out to their homes at the six month to do a check-in face-to-face to see how they are. And that information that we gather is, are the children still in the home? How are they doing? And are they still following the, the previous goals that we set? Are they still stabilized? And so that's the information what I typically do is I use the 12 month. I don't for the final for the final statistics. So if they're still in the home one year after closure and wow. and then I take each of the programs, the short term, that intensive, and then I take each of our um, longer intensive programs, which we have four of those. And I take each of those programs and I take them and I do each one of them. um, We have a score of how many of those children have remained in the home or a percentage. And then one of them is a reunification program. Three of three of them are preservation. And then we have a real intensive. And so I look at each of those percentages and then I take all of them add them together and get a mean score. And so our mean score last year was 95% of all the programs together the children remained in the home at one year. 
does CPS provide, can they legally provide you guys with information about whether or not they've been engaged with that family since Safi's relationship with them? Yes, they can. Um, we have a release for up to a year. Okay. Sometimes they have that information. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes um, our program is because of our success with the families, they close. They close the case. Yeah. Ariel, when a family is engaged with CPS and you guys show up at the door, what's your advice? And and this advice has to extend past a Safi relationship with the family because I know my guests, I know the parents who are on my 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 Facebook support group page. A lot of them have dealt with this and they may have to deal with it again. So when CPS becomes involved with the family, what's step one, two, three, four, all the way to 600 and, and you've got time to list them all. No, <laughs> I just, what, what is, what's your advice for a family that suddenly finds themselves in a relationship with CPS? Yeah. You know, you, you try to stay away from those words of like comply compliance yeah, and yeah. because that can be harmful. I really think it's a, a thing of we have to heal and go deeper to the root of what got you here, you know, and that there's layers to it. You know, you can't just walk in and CPS is concerned. You have to comply. I really think it starts with having to navigate what brought them there in the first place, right. being honest with themselves in the situation at hand or the situation if it's out of their control. And I think once they heal from that, being able to then bring that to CPS, we invite CPS workers to sessions. Sometimes we try to work very collaboratively with them by having family meetings and things of that such to make sure we're on the same page on the table, but also letting the family be able to have that voice without that fear. And so that's where advocacy is strong, where we're saying, let, let CPS really know what's going on. Because sometimes I think when we shy away of, of the truth and what brought families there, that's when it becomes a deeper issue. Does CPS respond to the truth? Well, I mean, if, if you're, if you're suddenly admitting to CPS that you grew up in an abusive environment and it's what you know, or you grew up in an abandoned environment or an environment with addiction or that the trauma of adverse childhood experiences, right? Do they listen? Do they take that into account or are they just looking at the healing factor? I think they can take that into account. I think I've seen it. CPS workers themselves have to be trauma informed to, you know, to some degree. And I think CPS has a good relationship with us. Um, so we were in communication with CPS a lot. You know, we, yeah. we take their calls. We send weekly updates every single week. So oh, wow. a CPS worker should not be not informed of how a family is doing. So they're watching their progress. They're knowing what's going on. It's not, we're just not in the home. We're really making sure that all the T's are crossed. All the I's are dotted. So the first one is honesty. Get ready for brutal mm -hmm. truth. Get ready mm -hmm. to to express it, to experience it. What's next? And Nicole, you can chime in on any time as as well. What's what's next for a family? Do they call an attorney if they can afford one? Do they call you? I mean, do they hire their own therapist or find a, a coach for their their kids? Or what else does a family do when when CPS is in relationship now? You know, our treatment plan is based on uh, what's called a NICFIS assessment. And that assessment ranges from like environment, self-sufficiency, family interactions, uh, child well-being, mental health, family health. And so we, we work the treatment. And our program, our curriculum is designed that we're not just going to work just on mental health. We're going to work on environment, environmental concerns. We're going to work on financial concerns. All those concerns we're going to work on where we can hopefully put some type of bow on it where CPS won't have those concerns anymore. So we also, you know, 
try to put in wraparound services and resources at the same time um, because it does take a village. But I, I just like to say we, we work the treatment and we advocate, you know, if they have a public defender, if they have to go to court, we're going with them. So, you know, at that point, let, let's let's go hand in hand and work this out. Nicole, when when a family is working with with Safi, is there there's a single caseworker or do you get a whole treatment team? You usually get one single caseworker, but sometimes we put more than one depending on the needs of the family and the um maybe we'll add a you get a therapist and case coordinator. You know, it just depends on on the level of needs to tag on to what Ariel said. Part of how we facilitate some of those meetings with CPS, if for some reason CPS has not been trauma-informed, we also like to help facilitate those conversations so that when our families are trying to be as honest about their history, we can soften that some by going, this is, this is what this, this is what trauma is. And this is why that they are doing the things that they are doing and um, or why they're parenting as they are. And so we're going to work with them on trying to uh, or, or why their children are behaving the way they are. And this is why their family dynamics look the way they do. And so it's not that they're bad people. That's our goal. And so sometimes that um, narrative has to change. And so that's our role. And we do that in court too, you know, and, people um, have a, have the wrong idea of our families. And so we help, we help change that. That's being a therapist, but also facilitating those conversations. And so, you know, I I just think that's a huge role that we play. That's a massive statement right there. Mm -hmm. So you are, you guys are giving the family their narrative back. You're, You're allowing them to, to start to really say what's happening and what's going on for both of you. My, my final question you guys are in seven states. What do you tell parents who don't have access to your services in their state? What can they do? You know, I I would say a lot of the community mental health centers have in-home services to look for that because we are federally funded. So I would think that that's offered community mental health to look for that. I would say also to tell families to advocate for themselves I think families forget that they have a voice in their situation. They have a voice in their journey. So families have to know that they have their rights and they can say, hey, CPS worker, give me some resources. You have a problem with my situation, then help me out. So I I really believe in like teaching people to use their voice and advocate. So for themselves. Absolutely. Whether a family's in a state where you guys are located or whether they're elsewhere. You have stuff on your website for them. You have stuff on your Facebook page for them. Like, like you, you have a, you have an online community. Can you guys talk about how to get in touch with your online community? Well, with our Facebook page um, and then the Safi.org, there's a lot of links on there. Safi does a really good job of making sure that our states are connected and we're all kind of speaking to each other on how we serve our families, our clients. And so go on Safi.org and check it out. Um, We're in seven states, helping people, helping families, helping kids. If you're in Kentucky and you need our services, um, it comes directly to us uh, if you need services. There are people who work on the front lines of the mental health and family welfare world. And Nicole and Ariel are two of those people. Those are the warriors. 
people who are interested in in the outcome not the income and that's all that's how you can always tell you're you're talking to or working with the warrior that outcome matters more that that would that the legacy of healing becomes greater than the legacy of trauma and violence and racism that's what people like this the teachers the nurses the mental health care workers that are out there doing this work that needs to be done families need resources no matter what's going on your level of frustration your shadow your mistakes your own trauma as a parent does not negate the fact that you should have recourse to the law to mental health to medical care to education this is this is what organizations like this like safi provide so safi.org safy.org that's where you're going to find them and safy on facebook i've had the facebook page up the whole time i've had the the website up the whole time there is so much there i want to thank deepen productions for producing this podcast and i want to thank your cause consulting for making sure that this show is getting in front of the people who need it special thanks to ariel and nicole for being my guest today on beyond risk and back Parents, take care of yourselves first. And that can mean go get support. It can mean drink water, sleep better, eat nutritious food, move your body and breathe on purpose. But it also means you can bleed that self-care into part two, which is adult relationship care. Because when your teen's struggling, it's hard not to feel judged. It's hard not to feel like nobody gets it. People do. People get it. So I got to start over. Take care of yourselves first, your adult relationship second, and your children third. Because in that way, you're going to do your best work for your children. I'll see you next week.